today, we're going to do a, a thing that I've d- I did a couple years ago, and I, I had a blast doing it, and so we're going to do it again today. It's called, What's on My Mind? What's on My Mind? And so I'm going to take you through a series of three or four, depends on how much time we have, of questions that have been asked of me over the last X number of months, and I'm just going to answer the questions according to uh, biblical view and so forth, and, and, and how we feel. But I'm going to give you an opportunity today, and we're going to put it up on the screen. Uh, you can text any questions. I've got my cell phone. You can text any question. No question's a stupid question. Not every question is going to have a chance to be read, but, but not, no question's are a ridiculous question. You can actually text me a question, and I may or may not have the opportunity to answer it on, on today. Today, uh, during the, the service, I might, because we've got about 30 or 40 minutes here together, but if we don't, I promise you that this week I will answer your question. I'll reply, giving the answer to your question. Now, I'd, I'm, I'm, I'm challenging you to ask a question that might have something to do with your spiritual walk or something to do with maybe the church, and I don't understand why we do this or what's up with this or how come this, um, or, or something to do with maybe your, um, uh, your relationship challenges that you might have or how do I help a friend through this issue? I don't really care how you disguise it. Just ask the question. And if you do, you probably have a question that somebody else has as well. But I want to start while you're thinking about your questions. By the way, that is my personal cell number. You can have that. Put that in there. Put Troy, New Life in your phone. That way you have it. Just know that I don't know who you are when you text me. So it, you can, it'd be, if you don't want to tell me your name when you text the question, I get it, right? That's cool. But if you want to text me a conversation, make sure you tell me who you are. That way, that, that'll help me out tremendously. All right, so I've got four questions. You already say yes. yes. Is everybody ready to say yes? yes? First question, and all of these are big questions, believe it or not. Some of you might go, well, why are you even asking that question? Seems kind of ridiculous or kind of obvious to me. Because it's not obvious to everybody. Are you ready for this? Question number one, why don't we dress up for church anymore? Why don't we dress up for church anymore? Now, uh, we're going to answer this question. I'm going to answer it in a very biblical way, uh, but I'm also going to answer it in an unexpected way. How's that sound today? So I'm going to need your help with this one, and there is zero judgment from me. The question is, why don't we dress up for church anymore? What, what is it about this whole thing? The Bible says that outward appearance is not really what God is concerned about. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, the scripture, the Bible addresses the issue of modesty, all right? So we're not dealing with, the, with that issue so much today. But more than that, it says God looks, God looks at the heart of man. And so it's, it's, a, it's a question that's kind of, kind of loaded. And so I want, us to, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 23, and I just want to read to you one verse in uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse number five. It's a powerful verse, one that you probably read and memorized because it was, it's fun. Everything they do, Jesus says, is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Isn't that a fun verse? Their phylacteries are wide and the tassels on their garments are long. I know! It's like, read it again, Troy, because that's so inspiring and encouraging and relevant to what I'm going through in my life today. In fact, when I get to the parking lot in just a few minutes, we're going to have the phylactery talk is what we're going to talk about because it's fascinating to me. I realize it might not be something that we understand, but it might be something that can help us because everything in God's word is powerful. It's powerful. Now, some people don't know really what phylacteries are, and quite honestly, I admire you if you don't know what phylacteries are, um, because you have no reason to know what phylacteries are, but I'm going to tell you what phylacteries are today so that you can understand. In the Old Testament, those in spiritual leadership, maybe they were uh, priests or, or, or bishops or pastors, uh, those that were in spiritual authority um, in the Old Testament, they, they would wear something on their forearm or sometimes even their forehead. Think of it as a, a Fitbit. Uh, they would wear like a Fitbit on their wrist, something about that size. It was a little, oftentimes black, a leather box. And in that black leather box would be a tiny little piece of parchment paper, all rolled up and stuck in there. And there would be a verse on that, uh, uh, that little piece of parchment. And they would wear it around because it had been a verse that meant something to them. Uh, it's, you know what it was? It was an Old Testament 
what would Jesus do bracelet? That's really what it was, right? And so they were wearing a WWJD bracelet on their wrist, and people knew that they belonged to Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. We gave you so many bracelets over the years that you can wear. How many of you remember getting a bracelet that, that says, um, uh, uh, greater is he, and, and you wore the bracelet, and you even have it right now, don't you, Roy? Right on, greater is he. And so there's nothing wrong with that. And even, it's kind of like wearing a Christian t-shirt today, just, you know, uh, um, um, my uh, Jesus beat the devil with a big stick. One of those t-shirt you know what I'm talking about right and so and there's nothing wrong with that but they would wear these things but then somebody would kind of got wind and noticed huh and so instead of wearing the Fitbit one they I need some Jerry jump up here please I need some volunteers if you would please Todd would you jump up here and help me please as well I greatly appreciate that Drake would you jump up here and join me as well come on man right on football player superstar right on yes all right all right good so so you can't have coffee uh, uh, this time so you're gonna have to put that coffee down because you're gonna need your wrist uh, for just a second so Jerry's gonna be Jerry's gonna be your number one so Jerry comes to church and Jerry hold out your wrist if you would please Jerry decides he's going to well the phylactery that somebody else was wearing was like Fitbit size. So Jerry shows up at church and he's no longer going to wear a Fitbit size. Jerry decides I'm going to wear a little bit larger phylactery so that everybody can see that I'm wearing a phylactery because I've got a little bit more scripture in me, a little bit more Bible in me. And so he's walking around with some pride going, yeah, look at your little old phylactery. But my phylactery is bigger than your phylactery. And so he's, he's carrying that, he's wearing that. And then, and then what happens is Todd says, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, um, if you're going to wear a bigger phylactery, then next Sunday, Todd decides, I'm going to wear even a bit. This is going to be fun because you're going to have to take this sucker off later. He's going to wear even a bigger phylactery to church. And so Todd's got a phylactery on like this. And he's wearing his phylactery because now everybody, I mean, starts off with a little bracelet, a WWJD thing, a little Fitbit size. And then we got, and then by the third week, boy, baby, we've got an issue at church because by the third week, we have, got, I know this is crazy and this is going to be a lot of fun. By the third week, the phylacteries gotten out of control. And people are, now we've, hold up your phylacteries, fella. Isn't that exciting? So we've gone from a relatively unnoticeable phylactery to a little bit bigger, to a little bit bigger, to a little bit bigger. It sounds stupid, doesn't it? It just sounds nuts. But this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. I mean, it, to us, it, but does it sound that ridiculous to us? They would go to church and they would wear these phylacteries and they eventually, somebody said, I'm going to supersize mine. And so they supersized their phylactery because they were saying, I've got more scripture in me than you've got more scripture in you. And so it became this competition in which people were using their outward appearance and what they wore on the outside as kind of this billboard of how they were more spiritual than somebody else. And what they would do is, hold up your phylacteries, I know it's heavy down there, but um, what they would do is they would judge other people by the smallness of their phylactery. Jesus, uh, dare I say, got ticked off about this. In fact, this chapter, Matthew 23, is, a, is the chapter that's affectionately known as the seven woes to the church. Jesus says, woe to you. Woe is one of those words that is, um, I can't remember what it's called, and some of you teachers in the audience can help me, but it's a word that actually sounds like what it means. Woe to you. If you are wearing your phylacteries large so that everybody can see how proud you think you are. Oh, then there's another thing to this. Jesus says in the same verse, which we have, they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They would, they would have like blue, like blue ribbon. And a blue ribbon uh, that would be worn on the back, uh, these are the religious leaders, they would, they would, all these outward adornments. All these outward adornments. And Jesus came to say, forget about those things. It's not about what's on the outside. 
It's about what's on the inside. And so they would put a little blue ribbon on the back of their, it's like a, like a tassel on the back of their cloak. Um, and so they'd wear this little blue ribbon and people would know, okay, well, that's a, that's a spiritual leader. That's a religious leader. And then before long, somebody else said, I'm going to go bigger with my ribbon. I'm going to go bigger with, and before long, they were all, they, they, they look like half the, they look like. Uh, the, the Seattle Seahawks, uh, were all decked out in blue is what they did. And everything on them was blue. Oh, that's nice that you've got a blue shirt on, but I've got blue pants as well, right? I've got blue coming from everywhere. Because blue was the color that showed that you were in charge. Somehow you had spiritual authority. And Jesus was mad. And he says, woe to you. And guys, you can go have a seat after the service. I'd like those phylacteries back, but you could take them with you. Yeah, that's where you, thank you so much. Give these guys a hand. Can you, can you thank, thank him for their assistance today? <laughs> Jesus makes it clear that the focus should be on the inside and not on the outside. And, 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 and so you might dress a certain way. Um, and I'm not putting down people that like to dress up or dress down or somewhere in the middle it doesn't I don't care wear clothes that's the most important thing right um but but what's the motive is the question Amen. and I love the way that the way the church has gone now I respect people who say but yeah but you should bring your best and you should wear your best um on Sundays because you're you're coming to to worship the Lord that's fine if that's your personal conviction then keep that between you and God and do it nobody's gonna that's okay uh, I, it, but I also don't think it's healthy for us to be like, I'm not dressing up for nobody. Does that, does that make sense too? Because that flips the script and that's just as bad as the, as the other way. And so it's, it's not about outward appearance. Jesus never says it's about outward appearance. And so he rebukes the people by the spiritual stature uh, of the clothing items that they're wearing. Why? Because God wants authenticity and God wants sincerity. Amen. So biblically speaking, there's no such thing as church clothes. In fact, Jesus is really just saying, woe to you if you've taken hours to prepare the outside, but you've taken no time to prepare your heart. Amen. So there's the answer to question number one. See how we're doing this? Kind of fun, isn't it? Question number two has nothing to do with question number one. Question number two, Troy, I hear this all the time. I want to change. I really do. But how do I do that? Now, there's probably not one person here watching by live stream or, or listening to the podcast that can't say yes. That's, the, that's a question that I would ask. Everybody, everybody asks that question. I, I want to change. I really want to change. And you think of the area in your life you want to change. I really want to change this. How do I do that? Now, can't possibly answer this with a wide brush stroke, but I'm going to attempt to kind of do that. Um, Colossians chapter 3 is what I want to read to you and kind of help us paint the picture. I'm going to read out of mine while you take a look at it on the screen or hopefully even in your own Bibles. Colossians chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse number, number 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved... Okay, so we're God's chosen people. We're holy. We're loved by God. Clothe yourself with compassion. I want to be compassionate. Uh, kindness, I want to be nice. Humility, yes, I want to be humble. Gentleness, I want to be gentle. And patience, okay, I'll try. Bear with each other. In other words, you know, put up with each other. And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful, and be thankful. Somebody say amen. amen. Others are like, oh my, right? How am I supposed to do that? How do I do that? How, how do I do that? You don't know my mother-in-law. How do I do that, right? You don't know my coworker. You don't know my boss. You don't know what I've gone through as a child. You don't, you don't know. You don't know. But God does. And he wrote this love letter to you, knowing that in the year of our Lord, 2019, that you'd be faced with the situation you're faced with, and he's got you. Um, anybody fly very often? Has anybody in here fly, anybody, anybody ever flown an airplane before? Okay, good. There we go. We're on the, we're, at least we're there together. When uh, I've flown a lot, but when you fly, you're going to listen, well, you're going to listen to things like this. Listen, listen to the screen.
Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You're all very welcome to Roadchair Flight or A401 to London Heathrow. Before our departure, may we have your attention while cabin crew point out the safety features on board this Airbus A320. To fasten your seatbelt, insert the metal end into the buckle as cabin crew are now demonstrating. To secure seatbelt, pull on the loose end of the strap. To open, lift the buckle cover, which should be faced away from you. In the event of loss of cabin pressure, oxygen masks like these will fall automatically from the panel above your head. Pull the mask down sharply, cover with your mouth and nose, and secure with the elastic strap. And please breathe normally as cabin crew are now demonstrating. Only when you have secured your own mask should you attend to children and other passengers. Okay. On board this aircraft, okay, okay, there okay, are okay, six okay. So we can stop right there. Um, uh, I've never had to use one of those oxygen masks. And maybe you have had to use an oxygen. I even read some articles this week that says there's not really oxygen flowing through that. There's something else. I don't know what it is. But it, uh, you never know what internet stuff is, what it's saying to you. But if you've never had to use one, say, you know, thank you, Lord. I've never had to use one. But to start the flow of oxygen, pull the oxygen mask towards you, covering your mouth and nose. Tighten the elastic bands. Even if the bag doesn't inflate, oxygen, if they say, is still flowing. But the most difficult part of this is the next part. If you're traveling with a child, put your mask on before you help them with theirs. If, if you're traveling with a child, uh, make sure that you're okay before you make sure your child is okay. And that is just opposite of everything that goes inside of us, isn't it? I mean, we just dedicated this beautiful little girl. I can't imagine mama saying, uh, I'm going to take care of me before I take care of you. How many know that doesn't seem like parenting 101, right? Parenting 101 says, I'm going to take care of my baby before I take care of me. But in this case, when you're traveling, it makes total sense. I can't help my family. We've flown with all four of our, all seven of our kids. Uh, we can't help our children. We can't help our children if we're not alive, Amen. if we're not conscious. And so I want to change. I really do. How do I do that? I can't change the trajectory of my life, nor can I influence change in my family lineage for my children and my children's children if I don't first put on my oxygen mask. Listen, if you want your kids to be breathing life-giving oxygen of God's peace, of his joy, of his forgiveness, of his grace, how many of y'all want that for your kids and your grandchildren? I want that for my kids and my grandchildren. Then that's the air that you need to breathe. Amen. Let me put it to you this way. If that's not what you're inhaling, then that's not what you're exhaling. And if that's not what you're exhaling, that's not what they're inhaling. And if that's not what your children or grandchildren are inhaling, then friend, that's called a generational curse because that's not what they're exhaling either. Amen. So we've got to figure out how we're going to change this thing. I really want to change. I believe you. I'm sincere about that. I believe you. How do I do that? Well, if in your home, you are inhaling anger. If you are inhaling bitterness, if you are inhaling resentment, then I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, you are exhaling the same thing. Can God be mocked? Galatians 6.4 tells us. Can God be mocked? No, he can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. In other words, a man exhales what he inhales. You see, be a phrase all the time. You've heard it before. Garbage in, garbage out, right? You don't want your kids breathing the air of bitterness, of resentment, of, of, of rage and anger, of unforgiveness. Here's the deal. Whatever you're exhaling in this room right now, somebody near you is inhaling. And that kind of sounds gross, doesn't it? Some of y'all germaphobes are like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do that. Um, but that we're sharing this thing called air together. But what's happening is we oftentimes as parents and as grandparents and as aunties and as uncles, and, and we're, what we're doing is we are influencing the culture around us in a negative way. And yet we're saying, I really want to. No, you don't. You want to want to change. 
you don't want to change. Because if you want to change, and I believe you really do want to change, but if you want to change, there's a simple formula for that. And it really, it really does work. And we're going to get to that in just one second. Um, as a church, I want us, as your under-shepherd, as the leader of the church, to be inhaling the oxygen of God's grace every day, all day long, like, like truly living there. But many of us, many people, many of you in this room are struggling with issues, and I, we all have stuff. One major issue that we see um, permeating our culture right now is, is, the, is anger. I'm just mad. I'm just angry. And I've got a right to be mad. I've got a reason to be mad. And so this anger is the oxygen, the, the air that you're breathing in, but it's also the air that you're breathing, breathing out. And so people around you, newsflash, are wondering, is he going to go off today? Is she going to go off today? They're, they're wondering that about you because you're waking up in the morning and you find yourself when you wake up kind of ticked off. You're resentful, you're irritated with the people that you share life with. I really want to change. I really do. How do I do that? Well, here we go. Breathe in every day God's oxygen. I'm telling you, if you are struggling with an area that you cannot change, I would probably say in my 26 years of pastoring, I'd probably say I'm pretty right on this percentage. Probably 97, 98% of people are not doing the 101 level things to enhance in your relationship with God. What are those things? I'm glad you asked. It's really simple. One, number one is you gotta get you gotta get to know the God who created you. So I'm not trying to give you a checklist of things to do. It's not about doing. It really is about being. Who are are you? But you can't be unless you know. And you gotta know God. And how do you know God? You gotta read His Word. I mean, you, there's we have no excuse in our culture because in our culture you can be driving down the road with a free app on your phone. And through Bluetooth, it'll play over your speakers in your car. And somebody in any accent and any dialect with any kind of background music you want to write, you can have Funky Town playing while they're reading the Bible to you. And, and so there's no excuse to not get into God's word. Now, I still think it's better for you to read it because I think there's something processing that happens in your brain when you read it. But at least have somebody else read it to you. Does that make sense? Amen. Read God's word. Get into God's word. You, you got to do this. And it's not about uh, uh, doing as much it is, as it is being, understanding God's grace. Secondly, uh, talk to God. Talk to God. Hit the pause button on the phone or tell Siri. You don't even have to touch the pause button. Tell, use your voice. Say, Siri, pause. All right? So now you're driving down the road in your two-hour commute that you think came from the devil, but God just wants to have a couple hours with you. Amen. And hey Siri, pause. God, I just oh, did you hear that? My, my 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 phone just did it works, man. It's like hallelujah. Um and 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 you say, God, I I that sounds hard what I just heard. I, I really want to know a little bit more about that. I, I, is that something that you're trying to is this just are you talking to me? And God will tell you. You'll feel, you'll hear. You, can, you need to develop this relationship with God that is not like a telephone call that there's an ending to it, but it's almost like a speakerphone call that you're walking around doing life, but he's there with you the whole time. Amen. And you're just talking to God. So that's what prayer is. And then, and, and then, and then of course, we've got to read the Bible, but the, one of the biggest things is we need to do life together. You need the fellowship, the connection of a church. And the reason you do the reason we do, and that's why we promise when we, when we dedicate children that the church is pledging to help you, but you've got to be a part of the church. The reason is, is because, not because the church is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Somebody say amen, right? The church is full of imperfect cracked pots, right? And if you're, listen, 
You come to church, churches big, churches really small, churches medium-sized. You come to church, and you're looking to find somebody that's just going to make you look good in the sin state that you're in. You'll find them. You'll find them. Hey, you're looking, you go to church, you're looking for somebody that's going to kind of pull you up to the next level. You'll find those people as well. Does that make sense? Amen. So you just got to, you got to get connected with people and, and then you got to be intentional about developing relationships. And I'm telling you, when you do that, it will help you because we have so much to be thankful for. And as you breathe that in, you will then breathe that out. And that's how we stop generational curses. My, my, and this is true for me. My great granddaddy was an alcoholic. My granddaddy was an alcoholic. My, my daddy was an alcoholic. But I'm not an alcoholic. And I'm not going to be an alcoholic. And my, my daughters are not alcoholics. And my grandchildren are not going to be Are you following what I'm talking about? Because we stopped the curse. How do you stop the curse? You quit breathing in and breathing out that stuff. It's not hopeless. You're not helpless. You've got all power. And that power comes from the source. And the source is Jesus Christ. Amen? Come on. Somebody say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, I'm just going to take a quick look and see if I've got any questions here that I, if I don't know the answers to, I'm going to say I don't have any questions here. Um, and uh, we'll get to that one later because that one's an interesting quote. We got, we got questions coming through like crazy. Right? Let, me, let me just uh, take tackle this one. Um, what's the main reason Jesus came to the earth? Which is really a loaded question because people really don't care. What they really care about is part two to this question. Why am I here? And you can't answer, why am I here, if you can't answer, why, why was Jesus here? Why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I? You can phrase that any way you want to, but you really do want to know, why, why am I here? Why, why here? Why now? Why this? Why these people? Why this relationship? Why this problem? Why this challenge? Why this financial implosion? Why this success? Why, God? Why am I here? And I want to... I want to point to you to just, a, just one verse initially in Luke's gospel, chapter uh, 19, verse number 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Somebody say amen. amen. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost lost. I love this verse. I love it because it tells us all about who Jesus is. It tells us about, but listen, the rest of the story about this verse, not so fun. Because we like to think that Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. This story though is about somebody who's lost, who is a cheater, who is a liar, who is a thief, who is a manipulator, this is a bad person. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. I don't mind that. In fact, I really like that when we're talking about a person who is hurting to no fault of their own. Have you ever been hurt to no fault of your own before? It was like totally somebody else's fault. I mean, we think of the stories where somebody is born blind and Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, going to help them going to heal them, going to restore sight to them. Uh, how about somebody who's lame, no fault of their own, they were born that way, or somebody who's, who's sick, or uh, the woman with the issue of blood suffered with it for 12 years, not her fault, that uh, uh, my, the child is dying, uh, the, the Roman centurion says, my child is dying, and in fact, she ends up dying. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were, I'm stuck in a storm. I'm just trying to get to the other side of the lake, man. I'm just trying to get from, I'm just trying to get these kids out of my house, right? I'm just trying to get through this day because I got to make a living because my family needs groceries on the table. I, I just, I just want to get across the lake and a storm comes up. And we li I like to look at that story and I'm like, wow, I see myself in the story just like you see yourself in the story. These aren't the only people Jesus came to seek and to save, not just the persecuted, not just the rejected. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost like this dude that we're going to read about. In fact, I want to take just a few minutes and kind of and, and, uh, go through this with you because I don't want you to leave this, place, leave this place without having an understanding of what we're talking about. And so if you'll take a look at uh, chapter 19, verse number one in uh, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 19, verse number one. Again, the question is, what's the main reason Jesus came to the earth? Well, we know it's to seek and to save that which is lost. And then we're trying to find out from that, why am I here? What's my, 
What's my purpose? What's, what's, your, what's your plan for me, God? Everybody talks about, he's got a plan for you. Well, tell me. He wants to use you. How? He wants to equip you. For what? We ask those questions because we really want to know. Well, let's see if we can discover something through this just 10 verses. Are you ready? Verse number one. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing. He wasn't even trying to go to the city. In fact, a little while, a little while earlier in the previous story, it says Jesus approached Jericho. So there's this city, Jericho. Jesus is trying to get to Jerusalem. He's got to go through Jericho. It says he approached Jericho, bumps into a blind guy, begging on the side of the road, and Jesus heals him. He didn't ask to be healed, but Jesus healed him anyway. His name was Bartimaeus. And then it says, Jesus, what's it say? It says, he entered Jericho, planning on just passing through. But you know that Jesus knows what he's doing. Everybody around him and his posse and his crew and his group, his disciples thought we were just passing through. We've got a place to go. But Jesus, Jesus has a whole, I love the word of God. Verse number two, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. And was wealthy. Well, he was rich, but he wasn't happy. There's a lot of people in your life that are rich in one way or another, but they're not happy around you. They've got no joy because they don't have it in the Lord. And so Zacchaeus was this chief tax collector. In our day, that's that's like me. We got a pretty good government job, right? No, that's like two rungs below prostitute in their culture. Like, it's a big deal. Like, you're disrespected by everybody because he's a thief. He's a manipulator. He's a liar. He's got, he's taken double portions for himself. Why was he wealthy? Not because the government paid well. You know what I'm talking about. Because he's taken bribes from everybody. Oh, yeah, yes. Nobody likes this guy. And then it says in verse, verse number three, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he's a, he's a, he's a tiny little man. In many ways, not just in stature. I'm not putting down people that are vertically challenged, right? But, I, but, I, but, but, in, but I'm saying is he's a small man in many other ways. Yeah. You don't become a small man, men, because people tell you you're a small man. You become a small man because of what you choose to do with your life. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other message, man. That's a whole series. Um, okay, verse, verse, number, verse number four. So he ran ahead uh, and he climbed. What kind of a grown man runs unless something's chasing him, right? Or unless he's out for a jog, for exercise. Uh, desperate people run. Desperate people, desperate adults climb trees in the middle of the day with a crowd. You know what I'm talking about? This man was desperate. And there's something about desperation that Jesus is attracted to. So he ran ahead. He climbed the sycamore fig tree to see Jesus since Jesus was coming that way. In verse number five, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, hey, dude, you, aren't you the chief tax collector? Yeah, you, the short little guy. I, I want you to come down because I think I know where you live and I want to go to your house for lunch today. Is that what he said to him? No. He called him by name. There is something powerful to Jesus. It tells us in, in Isaiah 43, 1, that Jesus knows your name. He knows the very numbers of hairs upon your head or lack thereof. He really does. He knows, he knows you more intimately than you know yourself. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Can you imagine the gasp of the crowd? <gasps> So many other people that Jesus could hang with that day. In fact, Jesus, you were on your way through this city. We all know that. The word had gotten out. What are you doing? Now everybody's starting to judge Jesus, which he doesn't mind at all. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And then it says in verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. And then something happens between this sentence and the next sentence. Dinner happened. And at dinner, I imagine Jesus, I don't know, I just, it seems logical to me that Jesus would have said, tell me about yourself. What is it, what is it you do? Who are you, Zacchaeus? You know, when Jesus asks you, tell me about yourself, who are you? Don't we just like openly begin to be like, I'm so sorry. I'm a sinner. Oswald Chambers tells us, fallen into the hands of an angry God. 
I'm, I, I repent, I'm sorry. And I think that's what happened during this luncheon because we read in the next verse, Zacchaeus uh, stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This guy sounds like he isn't just sorry. Sounds like he's actually repentant. See, repentance isn't just, I'm sorry for what I did. Repentance oftentimes means making restitution for what you've done. And it oftentimes, all the time, excuse me, means turning away from what you did and not repeating it again. And if you mess up, if you mess up, you do the process all over again. I'm sorry, God, I, I messed up. You don't hide like Adam and Eve did. After they sinned, because you can't hide from God. He knows you're behind the bushes, man. He knows you're naked, right? It's time to come out, out of your shame, and let him forgive you. Oh, man, this is a good story. Yeah, you're right, it is. Um, so he stood up and said, Lord, I'll give it half, uh, four times as much. In verse number nine, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. And then it says in verse number 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Why are you here? You're here, a primary purpose of why you're here is to help Jesus fulfill his mission. He called it the great co-mission. So you're on a co-mission, great commission, the great co-mission with Jesus. His mission is now our mission, and that is to get the antidote out to the pandemic disease of all of, of, of culture, and that is sin. How do we get, get forgiven of this thing called sin? Hey, I want to tackle one more thing, and then I've got a couple of questions that I really do want to get to. Uh, the one other thing is, so I, I get this all the time. The Bible's wrong. There's discrepancies in the Bible. There's issues in the Bible. I want to read to you just one that people have said. Romans, uh, Romans chapter 8, and uh, it's found in Romans chapter 8, verse number 37. Powerful verse. We've, you probably have heard it before, or maybe you've quoted it before, and uh, we are going to take a look at it right now. Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we have people say, through him who loved us. Well, sounds like that's an accident, a typo, because it says loved us instead of loves us. So we can't trust the Bible because the Bible has problems. Problems, right? The Bible has problems all over it. I'm telling you, um, I'd love to have that long conversation with somebody that really wants to trip up God's word. The only book that has been, that's proven to be infallible and authoritative. Divine rule of faith and conduct. It's, it's, it's still the, the best seller of all times. And it's not changing. Now, we have to change linguistically, language to keep up with culture. But but this one, who loved us, the, the tense of the word, you would think that it would say loves us, not loved us. If I said to my wife, sweetheart, I loved you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to say that at the second gathering because that's the one she comes to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if I, if I, there, there, she might raise an eyebrow, right? At, right? I might wake up a couple days late. You know what I'm saying? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes? Uh, you would think it would be in the present tense. Um, he loves us, indicating God's ongoing love for us. But here, this, I'm going to give you a, a language. This is the uh, aurorist principle. Uh, in, in other words, it's, it, it indicates the reference isn't just to the past tense, but it's the aurorist principle. In other words, it's to one specific event <laughs> in the past. We are more than conquerors, hallelujah, through him, Jesus, who loved us. Loved points to one particular event of love in the past, one specific thing where the reality and the extent of Jesus' love was proven for us, and that one, one event is found at Calvary. Amen. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just declaring his love for you, he was declaring victory over you. Amen. 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 Let's, let's take a look. It's just, we got, we've got like two minutes here. Let's see what other people are. Here's my phone. Yeah, it was going crazy. Um, let's see what some people are asking here and see. Great question. I could, I, in fact, I'm planning on doing this fall an entire message on this one question anyway. So, so I want you to be aware of that. Is suicide a sin? Do people that commit suicide go to heaven? 
Is it murder of one's self? (sighs) Hard to answer this in two minutes. But this is a question that has impacted every one of us in here. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, uh, my wife only has four cousins in her whole family, and one of one of her cousins committed suicide. Um, is it is it a sin? Well, let me put it to you this way: and a very straightforward answer is yes. But okay, so hear me hear me hard. I'm not going to make excuses for anything because it is the ultimate act of rebellion against God. Now, hear me: this is not for every situation because there are exceptions. I'm going to tell you that. But it's an, it can be an ultimate act of rebellion because God gave you life. That's why we don't end our life prematurely, guys. So with that in mind, there's a whole other category, and that is the category of mental illness. Amen. And who are we to judge to say that that person was fully coherent, cognizant, or not? I had an uncle commit suicide when I was a kid. Um, because he had watched his wife die of cancer. For, it took her like three years to painfully, this is before some of the major drugs, painfully pass away. After she died, two years later, he gets the same cancer, and he doesn't want to go through that, nor does he want to put his children through that, so he ended his life. And I tried to make it look like an accident, you know how people do, because he was trying to be gracious. How do you, as an eight-year-old, how do you reconcile that? But more importantly, now, how do we reconcile those things? Is God, is that unforgivable? The real danger of serving as a pastor is answering questions like this. Because if I say to somebody who is potentially suicidal listening online or, or a podcast that you bumped across or sitting in the crowd right now, and I say to you, God forgives suicide, you still go to heaven if you commit suicide. And if I'm wrong, I've just risked your entire eternity on that one statement. So I will not say that. I also take a big risk of people leaving. Well, that wasn't the message that I wanted to hear. That's not my responsibility either. I love, I love new life, not the sign in the building. I love the people. That's why we're all in with this thing. But, but we have to be truth tellers. And so when it comes to suicide, the ending of one's life, it really, I think, is a God choice in the last moment. God knows if they were mentally out of their mind or not. Scripture says, Paul tells us, the Corinthians tells us, that he will not give you more than you can handle. But he will always provide at least one way of escape for you. And here's, here's what I think is, is the escape. Are you ready for this? It's, it's telling somebody. This week, two conversations between myself and my staff with different people connected with new life, feeling suicidal. This is not an abnormal conversation for us to have. But the thing that I love is that people are willing to talk about it. Because if you're, if you're in this thing all alone, Satan loves isolation more than anything else. He wants to make you feel alone. There's nobody as bad as you. There's nobody as hurting as you. There's nobody as upset as you. There's nobody as wounded as you. And if he can keep you isolated in that funk, oh, oh, he can win. But 1 John tells us, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so that question is a profound question that deserves more than just a pat, rapid answer. But I hope I've given you the essence of Yes and yes and no and no. But talk to somebody. Please, talk to somebody. The other question that I think I read a few minutes ago, did, do dinosaurs, did dinosaurs exist? It's always a great question. It's kind of a fun question. Yes, we have a pet pterodactyl, and if you haven't seen it, it's in the back room. Um, of course they exist. I mean, there's, there's evidence that done, can, if God can create a world that is... Um, uh, can, can, can God not create old things when he creates things brand new? So that's, that's a quick answer. But there's, a, there's all kinds of you that are much smarter than I am in this area that you could probably give us more uh, uh, detailed answers to that. But yeah, I believe the dinosaurs existed. Yes, I do. Uh, uh, like other animals did. I don't know any reason why we wouldn't believe that. But, but, uh, but I think the question is much, much deeper than that. And I think I've got uh, one more uh, on here. 
Um, oh, if the question more specifically is, do they, where do they fit in the creation story? Um, yeah, good question. So um, uh, uh, I'm not going to answer that question. But it's a great question because I, I, I know I don't know. Um, but I know they fit in there somewhere. So read it again and then get back to me. How's that sound? Because it's, it's in there. I know it's in there. I just, I'm not a, an ontologist, whatever the first part of that word would be in, with regard to dinosaurs. Um, dino, what is it? Paleontologist? Is that what I was going to say that, but I'm like, no, that's that. Oh, I was saying proctologist. That's a different one altogether. No, no. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I didn't want to say the wrong one. I ended up saying the wrong one anyway. So, a couple more questions. We don't, I mean, let me see here. I know we got something on the phone here rocking. So, let me just check and see what this What's my favorite? Well, that's a nice question. What's your favorite Bible story? Ah, uh, man, I like so many of them. I think probably my favorite story is the longer story found in Genesis, the story of the life of Joseph. I like seeing what he came out of, how tenacious he was, how persistent he was, all the problems, including the family assaults and attacks that he underwent. And then in the end, he allowed himself to be gracious and forgiving because our gracious and forgiving God did the same for him. I just think it's a beautiful story. So that's a great question. According to scientists who dated rocks, carbon dating, well, that's not carbon dating, but who dated rocks on earth, they claim that the earth is 4.54 billion years old, but the Bible says otherwise. There's a simple explanation for this, but I am not a paleontologist that would deal with the issues of dinosaurs and such, but I can address this from a common sense principle. And this is where what the Lord took me to many, many years ago. If God was capable of creating everything, can he not create something old at its inception? So I think that kind of dumbfounds the wise immediately. So riddle me that one, Batman, right? One of those things. So let's talk about that from that angle. Now, maybe God didn't do that. Maybe it was something else. But more and more we're discovering, especially through creation scientists, uh, there's a Texas movement. I, can, I, I can't remember the name of the place right now. Um, but they are scholars in this area on the issue of carbon dating. And carbon dating has become now a, it has bitten the scientific community who says that the world is billions of years old when we now discover it's more like 10 to maybe 16,000 years old, which fits within the biblical context. So we can have a conversation about that, but I absolutely believe what the Bible says. Um, somebody asked earlier, uh, did God create dinosaurs in the last one? Well, yeah, sure he did. I mean, are there were such things as that? Sure. I don't know. I don't know. I, yes. Um, We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, um, my favorite female, uh, my favorite female of the Bible, um, oh, if not character in the Bible, but of the Bible, would be this lady right over here. Would be Keely because she's my favorite female from uh, the biblical. Just a uh, rock star. But my favorite female in the Bible. Um, wow, there's just so many females in the Bible that I, I could lean toward. It's a tough one. I've never been asked that question before. I will, I will answer the question. I will, whoever texted me this, I will, uh, I will text you back and I will respond to this one. But I do want to end with this one. Um, the last question. Is suicide a sin? Whew. Okay. Let me answer this from one side of the coin and then I'll answer from the other side of the coin without, without creating confusion because the devil is the author of confusion. First of all, and don't check out after I say this, but first of all, suicide is the ultimate act of rebellion before God because God gave to you your life. He breathed life into you and you taking your own life and ending that most precious gift that he's given to you, the gift of time, the gift of life is, uh, is absolutely a, 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 an act of rebellion toward God. And... We also know that there's a whole lot um, of depth in the area of mental illness. And when somebody loses their mind in a very literal sense, um, are they held accountable when they're no longer present for sins? Are we forgiven for a last moment sin that we can commit or are we not? I believe that we are forgiven for sins that we commit in the last second. Let's say this. You're going to be in a terrible car accident, and you're like, oh, beep, and you, and you die. Are you going to hell now because you didn't ask for forgiveness for that 
cuss word you said? I would hope that you would have been close enough to Jesus. You would have said, oh, Jesus, right? And meant it. But let's just say, let's just throw that one out there. Seems like such a minor thing. The answer to the question is no. You will not go to hell because you're still living under grace. Given the opportunity, of course, we need to ask God to forgive us, correct us, help us. Does that make sense? Here's the risk I take as your pastor, as a pastor, any pastor takes when we address this issue. If I answer the question, which is loaded, if I answer the question, um, if someone commits suicide, will they go to heaven? If I answer the question, yes, and somebody in the crowd or somebody watching by live stream or somebody listening to a podcast five years from now, here's this message and is suicidal, and they take their own life. What if I'm wrong? I don't want that blood on my hands, and I certainly don't want to lead someone astray. The Bible says it would be better for me to tie a millstone around my neck. And so we're kind of in this quandary. What, what is the answer to the question? Let me kind of scratch the surface. Here's the answer to the question. By the way, this, this is not an uncommon question we deal with at New Life Church. In fact, I would say at least a couple times a month, we have a conversation. One of our staff members does, or myself does, with somebody who wants it to be over. Um, and I'm really happy about that because that means they're talking to somebody. That means they're talking to somebody. What the most dangerous weapon in the enemy is not rage or even discouragement. The most dangerous weapon in the arsenal of the enemy is isolation. He wants you to feel alone. He doesn't want you to talk to anybody. Because when you talk to people, you begin to realize that we can reframe your situation and actually you're a little more normal than you think you are. And actually you get some understanding, get some empathy. And actually you can learn to work through your situation instead of feeling like I, I'm, I'm all alone. You're not an island which takes me back to one of the original questions. Um, I really want to change. I really do. How do I do that? You have to put yourself in authentic community relationships. It's important. And we can, we can have church, but that doesn't mean you're making friends. We can have events, but that doesn't mean you're coming to them. But I do know this. If you'll come and be faithful, try going to an event, throwing around a bocce ball. I don't even know how to play the game. You might just make a friend. You might just save a life. Or they might just save yours. We've been attacked by suicide. My uncle committed suicide. My wife's family has been attacked by suicide even in recent days. Suicide's very real. But you are not hopeless. And you are not alone. And there is nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing that the enemy can say to you that has an inkling of truth to it when it comes to your life being worthless. You are created in the image of God. This too will pass, whatever it is you're experiencing. The pain is real, but we can help you. I don't know of another organization on the planet that is more equipped to help you than the church of Almighty God. Let us help you. Well, I hope kind of a heavy one to end on, but I hope you've enjoyed this Q&A time. And if you have any questions, now you got my number. I don't claim to have the answers, but I can talk to people who might have the answers or point you in a direction that you can read a little bit. Here's the deal. Don't trust everything that you Google. Everybody say yes, right? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't research, but if that's your primary research tool is just Google, um, you can, might be setting yourself up for confusion in your life, right? So let, let us help you point you in the direction if you've got some deep questions. I did have a deeper question. Uh, if you want to take two more minutes, somebody asked me a deep question that some of you might be like, that's fascinating. Is anybody going to give me just, just two more minutes? I promise you, it won't take more than two minutes. This is the question. Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis 6-4 talks about the Nephilim, the Nephilim, however you say this. And uh, which I know some of you are like, I'd love to learn more about that, but I don't want to read. I don't want to do anything about that. The, but here, let me read the question to you from, from my phone. Fascinating. My question stems from Genesis 6-4, where it talks about the Nephilites, Nephilites, Nephilites. Uh, right after that, the flood happens. Then later in the Bible, Goliath happens. Was Goliath one of the Nephilites? And if so, how? 
uh, since everyone was wiped off uh, at, at the flood except for Noah's family, how could that possibly be? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at one verse, uh, read that verse, so we're all on the same page, Genesis chapter 6. Sorry, this thing is falling. Judges chapter 6, verse number 4. And it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. And you're like, what? Giants. The Nephilim were giants. Um, there are accounts, archaeological accounts of, and I could get into this. I, I told you two minutes, so I'm not going to go too much. There are accounts of, of finding bones of giants that weren't just nine feet tall, like we believe Goliath to be, nine foot three, nine foot six feet tall, uh, but as tall as, tall as 30 foot tall, um, yeah, 30 feet tall skeletons. Uh, just, these, are, these aren't made up, guys. These, aren't, these are real. I, w- I was there, okay? These are real Bones and archaeological digs. These Nephilites, Nephilites uh, were real, a real breed of people. And it says that they, they uh, there's, there's a handful of explanations to the question. And, and, and here's, here's what, I've, what I've got. Um, it could, some ancient texts say that Og, Og was the, the king of the Nephilim. That somehow he slipped onto the ark in hiding. And he was on the ark. It's a, it's, a, it's a lie, it's a bogus, but you might read that kind of stuff. Like somehow I'm going to hide behind the zebras. I don't know, you'll never find me here. And then, and then after the flood, but here's the deal. There couldn't have been any sort of, of Nephilim giant that stowed away on the three-hour tour on, the, on the, the, the ark. It couldn't have happened. couldn't have happened because God was going to deal with all the sin of time. Um, another one is maybe the flood wasn't global. Maybe the flood was the then known world, but then that means that some of the earth wasn't flooded. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the whole earth was flooded. And so um, I don't believe that one to be a, an option either. Here's one, um, the two options that I'm, I'm, I'm going between. Number one is, well, is it not possible that there were giants after the flood, but they weren't Nephilites? They were just giants. Somehow they were just bigger. Um, is it not possible that they could exist, but they were unrelated? Possible. Another one is, um, then maybe what happened was the Nephilim were destroyed, but through Noah's family lineage, somebody in his family continued the Nephilim bloodline. And this is the one that I kind of wonder about, for those of you that really care about this question, is because um, in, uh, in Ham who was one of Noah's sons, um, his wife, there are other books besides the Bible that are history books that aren't anointed a part of the canon of Scripture. And so in some of those other history books, we discover that Ham's wife had been married before. And who she had been married to was a Nephilite. And so the question was, was, the children that she had, was it possible that one of those children on the, on the ark or, or whether, who knows, was the bloodline transferred that way? Anyway, we've got all these questions we don't know. We don't know the answers to. Honestly, got to be real with you, it's fascinating to me. Just like end time stuff is fascinating to me. But I start down this road and I'll find myself four weeks later thinking about nothing but that subject and people are going to hell all around me and this doesn't really matter. Does that make sense? So I know what I'm called to, but this is fascinating stuff. I don't know the answer to the question for sure, but there, now, you've, now you've got really five more options to confuse you even more. You're, you're we are welcome. <laughs> so, so anyway, there's all kinds of questions about God's word and I love to get into this thing and I don't know, man, I'm gonna be preaching for another 40 years and we're still not gonna tackle all the questions in God's word and that's what makes it so exciting to me to spend forever in heaven. God, thanks for this time. Thanks for this church. Thanks for these people. Thanks for these families. Thank you, Lord, for entrusting us to sow in, sow into so many hearts and minds and lives and spirits and families and lineages. And God, we are so grateful and we don't take that for granted. 
We ask that you'd bless us, strengthen us for the task that is at hand. Nobody knows what's around the corner this week. So we pray for your supernatural power, your anointing, and your provision. God, we pray that you'd protect us, use us, anoint us, strengthen us, and God, that we would change the world in which we live. We thank you for all these things in the powerful, awesome, holy, anointed name of Jesus Christ. And if you agree, would you say amen? Amen and amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you. May he give you rest and may he give you peace. And now I'm getting all kinds of text messages coming through. We'll be getting to these, but I'm going to go home and watch the recorded Chiefs game. Uh, not, not that it's not, this isn't priority, but I'm going to take a couple hours off. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And then I will get to your questions this week. Sound good? God bless you, New Life Church. Have a great Sunday. Amen, amen, amen. <laughs>